Welcome to Disarming Persuasion, the podcast for sales and business leadership professionals. My name is Dave Rosenberg, and I am the founder and principal at Locked On Leadership, a consulting firm with a mission to replace Thank God It's Friday with Thank God It's Monday. And I'm Ann Bonney, redhead impersonator and an expert in change management and leadership that people want to follow. Okay, Ann. What are we going to talk about today? I want to talk about three basic needs that people have when you want them to feel like they want to interact with you. Well, don't I get a say in this at all? I mean, I feel so undervalued. You have no respect for me. <laughs> then why do you <laughs> Then why do you ask me what we want to talk about today? <laughs> So you can feel I think in next control. Week we need to say, what do you want to talk about today, Dave? Because because I want you to feel respected, valued, and controlled. Controlled? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> in control. So let me, okay. let me give you a little premise. I just blew why. this, folks. Wow. wow. That just go, went right off the rails. It, it was going so of- well up until I opened my mouth. Well, there was that. That's why I've been considering firing you from the podcast. But, you know. <laughs> anyway. So I had a really interesting conversation. So one of the things I talk about in my leadership keynote is that in order for people to want to engage in your leadership, whether it's you're trying to persuade them, you're trying to lead them, you're trying to convince them, or you're trying to correct them, they need three things in order for them to participate in the conversation, like willingly, right? Well, let's, let's well, hold on. Let me interrupt. <laughs> Do I have a choice? <laughs> No. Oh, okay, go ahead. But, but thank you for asking. You're so, <laughs> why the heck do we want them to participate in this conversation? Why don't we we just want them to hear from us? This is where you're falling short. Get your stuff together. What do we need their participation for? Well, studies have shown that when they participate and when they feel like they're part of the conversation, they're much more likely to walk out of the office and actually do something about what you ask them to do something about rather than roll their eyes and say, oh, Dave's such a blowhard, and then not do anything about what you talked about. I'm the boss. They better damn well do what I say. I don't care how they feel about me. Okay, then. Really? That's all you got? Okay. I'm trying to set this up so that you can explain how- So I can tell the audience what a jackass you're being. (laughs) Right. That's the whole purpose here. I'm I'm throwing myself on the proverbial sword here. So I'm sorry. I forgot we were doing the good cop, bad cop thing this this episode. (laughs) You're wrong, Dave. (laughs) No, I mean, as we all know, and we've talked about this a bunch of times, when people feel like they're part of the conversation, um, that they're part of the solution, Solution, that they're that they what they say matters, they're much more likely to want to hang out and be led, you know, and be persuaded and all that stuff. So no, just because you're the boss isn't good enough anymore. And it's it not even yeah, I, I mean you're absolutely right. And obviously I was I was modeling a uh jackassery. Right. Well, an antiquated form of leadership um that I think still exists to some degree. I, I believe it much less. My, my interactions with people is most people don't uh, aspire to that anymore. Uh, but there are still people who fall into that. 
because they don't have another example. But that does come to mind. I remember right after I got out of the Navy, and just to put some timing on this, because I think that's important. This was you know 1993. Um, so this this event probably would have occurred 1995 because I had started a business, which and then I, I needed to get a job when that business didn't take off, you know, a year and a half later. And I was interviewing for a position as a general manager for a company that uh, did, uh, well, what they did is important. It was, it was uh, you know, logo stuff, logo wear pens, all that sort of thing. They actually manufactured it. And the uh, one of the two owners said to me, well, have you ever done any real leadership? You know, and I'm like, well, I, you know, led 50 guys and responsible for millions of dollars of, you know, blah, blah. He goes, yeah, but that doesn't count because in the Navy, you just threaten people to throw them in the brig. And this is a guy who'd never served a day in his life. Um, and, and I'm like, yeah, no, that's not right. And, and yes, it is. Right. And so you know, there was this perception, you know, that uh, that was the way you led. And I actually, years later, ran into a guy, became good friends with somebody who used to work for this company and work for him. And he's, that was his leadership style. It was just do what I say. You can't trust anybody. And, you know, it, it, they were struggling, which is why they were looking to hire me. Fortunately, they didn't hire me because I would have not thrived there. Mm. So, so this definitely exists and it doesn't work. So what you're bringing to the table is a um, formula for a different style that works. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of people, you know, you may sit here and say, oh, no, 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 I wouldn't ever engage in that kind of leadership. But a lot of times people do it on like inadvertently. They don't mean to, you know, when we're in a leadership class, we know that that antiquated version of just do it because I'm the boss doesn't work. But when we're in that uncomfortable moment of trying to ask somebody to do something or, you know, tell them that they're not doing well, we kind of revert to the old way. And I always say we learn leadership when we're in school with our teachers and our parents who need to tell us what to do because kids are dumb and otherwise they'll end up with their head between the banister and 911 comes. And anyway, we revert back to that because it's easier, but in order to really get buy-in and really have true motivation, true engagement and true employee retention because people want to be there, we need to do these three things. And and I think the other, and, and I, I want to explore why people don't do these things a little bit before we get into what they are, because I think awareness is really important. I think it's as much a sense of frustration as anything else, right? And I've been there where, mm -hmm. you know, you, you're trying to lead people properly and they don't seem to be picking up what you're putting down or maybe something else completely unrelated to the conversation you're having has gone on. And, and so your uh, emotional um, uh, fuel, as it were, your ability to stay calm and disengaged may already be tapped because you spent it elsewhere. And this could be personal, right? Something happened at home, right? Kids are sick. You're worried about a million things could be going on. And all of a sudden, you know, and, and I've, I've heard this uh, I, countless times in my career from, from clients where they go, why can't people just do what I say? That's sort of the attitude. And now that comes out in a conversation. Listen, just do it. And, and it's just this lack of, in the moment, a lack of emotional intelligence that's driving that. Well, and I think also a lack of skill, a lack of understanding. What am I doing that is either not communicating these three things 
Or how do I communicate these three things? I don't know because this person isn't me. And so they're not taking it the way I do. And I don't understand. And then again, the emotional intelligence goes out the window because we don't feel like we're successful and bada bang, the perfect storm. Yeah. And um, so the skill piece, and I want to, so I want to, let, let's unpack these three things. We, we've actually hinted at them more than hinted at them. We've stated them. I was about to say, everybody's like, what are the things? Darn it. Well, we did state them outright in the beginning. Uh, you did, but they weren't listening at the time. They were no. getting a Coca-Cola and getting ready for my humor. They oh. usually skip like the first two minutes, Dave, because they're like, that's where Dave does stupid stuff. And then Anne like tries to be nice and then she's mean and then he shuts up and they start talking about it. Is that how it goes? <laughs> so before we unpack it, just real fast, I want to sort of because you talked about skill. So skill is more than just knowledge, right? Because like, I know how to hit a golf ball, but executing, hitting a golf ball and knowing how to hit a golf ball, right? The skill is in being able to execute it. So we're going to wrap this up with how you not just, we're going to give you the knowledge that's, that's our, we're going to cover next. And then we're going to talk about how you can actually develop the skill. So stay tuned. So what, are there three things? I was like, are we having a commercial break? <laughs> we could have gone into our knee-high grape soda song. All right. So what are the three things? Basically, people want respect. Basic respect. If we're not respecting them, they go out the window. They don't go out the window. They go out the door. Um, they also want to feel valued. Um, as all of us adults, we feel like we are bringing something to the table in our brains with our perspective and our knowledge and our experience. Um and if we don't feel like that's being um, respected or, you know, taken into account, again, they're out the door. And then the last one is having a little bit of control. And it doesn't mean they have control of everything. It doesn't mean they get everything they want. It doesn't mean that we pretend like they have control. It means we share control within the conversation and within, and they don't feel like they're just completely without control. So those are the three things, respect feeling valued and having a little bit of control. And this always brings up some really interesting discussion during my keynote. So I thought it would be a fun one to talk about here. Absolutely. So um, let's start here. What is the probably most prevalent comment or question around this that you get in your keynote? Um, well, people hear the word control and that's such a loaded kind of a triggering word these days because there's so much negativity around, you know, people being too controlling or micromanaging or very negative traumatic context that immediately when people hear anything around control and other people, they immediately put on the brakes. And the only reason I haven't changed it in my keynote is because when I send them off to discuss, there's always this about the word control. And then they start to find and they start into some really creative thinking about either other words like empowerment, like participation, like inviting them in or and they come up with the ways that giving control and also having control and co-creating, as you say, is or can be a really positive thing. So I leave that word controlling because it stimulates such great conversation, but that's always where the most comes in when I say, which of these don't you agree with? What would you add? Those are always my questions. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because as, as 
you know, we talk about this. Control was the one my eyes went laser to first. Um, and because I see that as the keystone, if you think of this as an arch, this is the keystone to the other two. When, when we can share control in this conversation, then people will feel valued and respected. So totally. Because, so yeah, it, because we're basically know, saying you you're bringing something to the table, and I want to make sure that we have that. So that's yeah, totally. I love it. Yeah, and and so I mean, if you wanted to shorten your keynote, you could probably cut out respect and feel valued because it really is about <laughs> sharing control. Yeah, but they usually give me an hour, so I'll go ahead and leave those in. I, I suspect you could probably do an hour on control eh, without breaking a sweat or even messing your hair up. It's beautiful hair too. So Thank let's you. talk. Let's talk about control because to me, this is really, really interesting. And what I'm about to say, I want to make sure you understand, I am not coming at this from a manipulative energy. But what I have found, and I would love for you to address this, is one of the best ways to give control and keep it at the same time is to ask questions instead of making statements. 100%. Because that says, I want you to be part of this conversation. I'm giving you the opportunity to be a part of this. Right. Um, so yeah, and, and that the reality is, if I'm the one asking questions, and and let me let me preface this by saying this doesn't mean you don't the other person doesn't get to ask questions, right? This is not like you know you you, you watch TV and and a cop saying you know where were you and and why do you ask. I asked questions ask around questions. here, <laughs> right? right. That, this is not what I'm talking about. But if all I'm doing is asking questions in the beginning, even if that question can be a response to your question, I'm actually in control because I'm driving where the conversation is going based on your responses. So, and the other person, because they're getting to share their input by answering those questions, is also in control because mm -hmm. they're giving the responses. And so that's also driving where my next question is going, right? So it, it is a shared control. Right. And and I think this is the the part of the this control like controversy in our brains is that sometimes we feel like control means one person has control and one person does not. And that's a fallacy. We can have control together and be sharing that back and forth within the conversation and within the relationship. And nobody has to dominate anybody. Nobody has to, you know, demand control in a good dialogue where I'm asking questions and my next question goes off of what you say. We both got control, which is beautiful. And that's perfect because now we're going to come up with a better solution or a better outcome of whatever we're trying to persuade or discuss based on us both having control. Yeah. And this is the same. And, you know, we're a persuasion podcast. Um, we've tended, uh, you know, in, in recent months to really focus on leadership. Um, and this still is a hundred percent applicable in sales and not just a sales situation where things aren't going right, just in sales in general. This is every sales conversation starts out with good questions and you are looking to co-create a solution together. At least if you're a 
exceptional salesperson. That's your that that's the outcome that I recommend you you strive for. And in a difficult conversation, a what what is really a count what what we keep saying a difficult conversation. We're generally talking about counseling conversations, although they can be conversations around conflict, which isn't necessarily counseling. That's more of a say, how do we resolve this conflict where we have uh, uh, what appear to be uh, conflicting needs around certain resources. That's where conflict stems from. And now we can have a uh, really good conversation to co-create a solution around that. And it all starts with good questions. Totally. And I think also it starts with good questions, but some of those questions could also be seeking out what people don't know or what resources they don't have. Because I think another way to give people control, especially within a new process or an unfamiliar process, is by giving them education and an understanding of resources. I think that's another way that we can give people control. And part of that question, it could be finding out what resources and education do they need to feel like they are in control of an unfamiliar process? That's a lot of times the way it goes in a sales um, thing. I was just helping a friend of mine with his website and he was he has this really cool sales process so that the client who's of course working with him for the first time knows what happens first. First, we have the discussion, then I'm going to send you a proposal, then I'm going to send you an agreement and you're going to pay the deposit. And then we're going to have a final call. And then I'm going to come and knock the socks off your audience. Like it was a very clear, this is how the process goes. And what I think that does is give his clients a comfort level and a feeling of control. Cause now I know what's next. And if I need something outside of that, I can get in touch. Yeah, and you hit on a really, really um, important point. And we've talked about before how the unknown is fearful. And so when we set expectations, this is the process, whether it's this is my sales process or, you know, if it's, a, let's just say it's a counseling conversation, we say, listen, and, um, you know, we need to talk about this. So I want to ask a lot of questions because I really want to understand what was going on with you and, and how you came to the decisions you made. And then, you know, together we're going to make a determination of whether, you know, there's needs to be some remedial action or not. I don't know. I'm not prejudging that. And then once we, once we figure that out, if there's remedial action to be had, we'll also figure out what that is and what the timeline for correction is. Okay. Mm -hmm. Or there's a possibility that we may uncover the fact that there is a systemic problem where we need the remedial action may be creating new policies in place that you've helped us uncover, in which case my commitment to you is that we'll put that in place as well. Right. Now all of a sudden, wow, okay, I'm part of this solution process, not getting my butt chewed. Mm -hmm. Well, and another piece where in exactly what you just talked about in that counseling conversation where somebody's not doing what they need to be doing. Um, part of control is also letting them know what the next steps are if things aren't corrected. Because a lot of times if it's a lateness issue or if it's a respect for the client issue or you know something like that where they need to fix the stuff or we move into progressive discipline, part of giving them control is helping them understand if this isn't fixed, here's the next step. Because ultimately our job is to give them the all the information they need to be able to make the best decision for themselves, right? And that's giving them control over the decision-making process that they have control over anyway, because I can never control what anybody else does, no matter how much I want to. <laughs> but by giving them that information, they now have control over that process and have a clear understanding of what's going to happen with each decision they might make. 
Yeah. And that's so beautiful. I talk about this, you know, again, in my keynote, as well as, you know, in my trainings and workshops, you know, one of the things that I offer to people is this free uh, best guide to improving employee performance and, and the key element in this. And there's a lot of things that are important there, but when you tell people what the uh, uh, outcome of failure to improve is, and they fail to improve. Now, this, of course, assumes you've given them all the resources they need, all the support they need to get better, and they fail to improve, then they've actually volunteered for that outcome. And right. from a psychological perspective as a leader and manager, it lets me off the hook. It's not like I'm imposing this on them. You're the, no, you're not the bad guy. They chose it. They chose it. And, right. and who, who am I to get in the way between them and their choice? Mm -hmm. And if we are giving people, making them feel valued, like they matter in the conversation and we're respecting them and we're giving them this control, they're going to feel comfortable, ideally, coming to you and saying, hey, Dave, I'm not on the road to improving this and I need a little more help, right? Because that's an option they have and hopefully an option we have clarified in this whole process of giving them the control to be able to make that decision. Yeah. And, and again, I don't want to hijack this to, you know, progressive discipline and best practices, but we, we did dip our toes in the water, making sure that you're checking in periodically with them. How is this going? Because that makes them, this goes to your second point, that makes them feel valued. It's not like, hey, sink or swim. It's like, look, I'm here to support you. Mm -hmm. And what interestingly I have found in my 30 plus year career is that this really becomes self-correcting two out of three times. You know, by that, I mean about a third of people are going to improve and get better and become product more productive than they were and meet your standards. A third of people are going to recognize that, you know what, maybe this isn't for me and I can't, for whatever reason, I can't do it. And it doesn't mean they're not capable, but maybe their heart isn't into it because they don't really want to be doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're going to leave on their own, right? So it's only one out of third who, you know, don't see the handwriting on the wall and or for whatever reason, again, not necessarily capability, it could be capability or desire for one of those two reasons. Don't, and, and so it's only one out of three that you then have to impose that outcome on and they're 100% in control of that outcome. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, interestingly, the, the keynote I did the other day was for a bunch of finance, student financial aid administrators. So their clients were the students. And so these, you know, people are trying to help their, the students get these loans. And they said, one of our biggest problems is deadlines, getting them in the deadlines. And my thought is, if they were able to do this, give them control of that process, which I'm sure a lot of them do. Give them the punch, the deadlines, give them a punch list of things they need to do, make sure that they have links to resources. Again, they're empowering them, giving them control in that process and saying, this is on you. Here's all you need to do it. Go. Yeah. And you know, this, you, you bring up a really valuable point as well. I, and on, along similar lines and to illustrate the breadth of applicability to this, what we're talking about, um, I've been engaged by a very large uh, commercial construction general contractor. They don't do have any of the trades themselves. They have trade partners to do everything. And the challenges mm -hmm. they have are getting their trade partners to do the things they're supposed to do on time. And more importantly, show up. 
Well, it's not yet typically show up, but it's show up with this cruise day because you know, you have a tight schedule and you say, okay, in order to get this phase done on this deadline, I need to put 10 people on the job. And then they only send eight or right. And so now it takes longer, which then sends the whole schedule off, which has a big cascading effect. They also have problems with their clients, the people who have hired them getting things done on time and that's the customer right and the customer is always the customer now, how do you how do you how do you get them to be accountable how do you get how do you hold your customer accountable well when you give them control by saying change orders need to be completed you know within 24 hours of presenting or the project is going to be come to a halt and we have a clause in our agreement that you're going to pay us additional because there's cost to us to start up again. Right. Right. So these will be the results if you fail to do this. Now it's up to the customer to decide whether I want to do that or not. So uh, it, it creates that accountability. And so now we have accountability coming into play because all of a sudden people are like, well, I have to do this or here's how the rest of the team suffers. Right. And and setting that expectation up front again helps you say when the time comes, okay, we can make through this change order. We can we're we it's going to interrupt the whole process as we talked about in the beginning. We're happy to do it. It is going to be XYZ. And now when I'm delivering that quote unquote consequence of this late change order, they knew about it. So again, I've given them the control of knowledge to be able to make that decision in an intelligent way. Yeah. And here's another piece of this, by the way, never assume they remember those earlier conversations, right? So it's not enough to say when you're signing the contracts in this case, yeah. right? Um, it's never enough to say, okay, you know, there's more, if there's any change orders, here's our timeline, or here's, you know, here's the penalty for failing mm -hmm. to do that. And that was two, three, four months ago. And because these are big projects they do. And now it's like, here's the change order. And by the way, just to refresh your memory, Per our agreement, I need this turned over. I need this returned, you know, tomorrow, or we're going to have to put a stop because we cannot move forward until we have this authorized. And here's what the cost to you will be. Mm -hmm. Right. And now they can make an informed decision because they're never going to remember that, you know, two months ago or whatever it is. Right. But again, you, yeah, I love that. I love it. And that's giving them control by informing them up front. Yeah. So just to rehash control, right? Engage them in the conversation. This is a two-way dialogue. Allow them to ask questions, but but drive it with your questions, at least initially, right? And, mm -hmm. and we've talked in the past about holding off judgment until you have all the facts. And this is really what that comes down to, at least in the in all, any in a sales conversation, you know, counseling conversation, whatever that might be. And when we do that, and then outline clearly what is to expect, ir irrespective of um, whether it's a counseling conversation or a sales conversation or just a you know uh, check-in meeting, whatever that might be, make sure they understand what the process is going to be, so that they can make decisions along the way and be in control of their outcomes. That's going to give them a huge uh, leg up which then goes to feeling valued. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the feeling valued piece. Well, I mean, we've all been interrupted. 
we've all been disregarded. We've all been not listened to in conversations and it feels like crap. Um, yeah, I, I get, I get all self-righteous and be like, well, they're not getting any of my value, you know, cause I, <laughs> I'm pretty confident in my value. So I get self-righteous, but some people shut down and they're, and they start to feel hopeless and they start to feel helpless. And if we need, we, if we want our people to be engaged, which we need them to desperately these days, we need people who feel empowered and who feel like their value, their knowledge, their intelligence, their innovation, their um, proactivity is valued. And so we've got to be upholding that. Yeah. So you just hit on something really critical here, which is listening skills, mm-hmm. right? Listening skills and eye contact. Um, and we have to be sensitive a little bit about cultural differences on the eye contact thing and, and how you do that eye contact, right? You know, I'm not talking about mad dogging people where I'm, yeah, well, you can't see folks, but that actually looked like kind of more goofy than mad dogging. Um, That's but, my you know, specialty. <laughs> It, it, mad dogging probably doesn't work as well on the camera um, as it does in person, right? But we've all met that person who stares intensely into your eyes and they they can very well be really focused because they're paying attention to you, but it comes off like being challenging, right? That mm-hmm. sort of alpha energy, um, but sort of a soft eye gaze contact. And, and, and one of the tips, um, you know, my coach, Michelle, our friend Michelle has is, left eye to left eye. Apparently there is some neurological um, processes that go on because the left eye is connected to the right brain and the right brain is more of the intuitive side of the brain. And so that and helps- the thigh bones connected to the hip. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, if you're going to sing, can you can you do that like an opera singer? Not right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you know folks, but Anne is a trained opera singer. Was. Well, was. no, you're still a trained opera singer. You're just not an opera singer. It just sounds like a toad when I do it. <laughs> Only to your ears. Trust me, you sound well. If you want me to do the opera singing, then you'll know what toads sound like. <laughs> at, at any rate, uh, you know, the right brain is is more the intuitive, um, you know, less uh, side of the brain. It's the side of the brain that, right. And so the left eye is connected to the right brain. So now we're connecting at sort of this human human level. So um, without staring, you know, daggers at somebody just, yeah, yeah, now she's got that dagger thing going. Um, You know, look at people in the eye and don't interrupt them as Anne has done during my 10 minute diatribe right now. (laughs) Yep. Um, Well, and I, I think as far as eye contact is concerned, I think it's just not being shifty. Right. We're not making constant eye contact like with our eyes wide open and staring at somebody. But as long as we're not glancing at the clock or glancing at our phone or glancing at the computer or glancing at other things, looking out the window, you know, we're we're definitely dialed and we know what that feels like. You know when your attention is on somebody, because that's what we're trying to do. Um, and when you're on virtual, a lot of us are working on Zoom, on Teams, on whatever now. Uh, this is really important to do with your camera. Um, we, I love it when I'm on a call where somebody has their Zoom, like has two screens and their video feed of the people is in a different place than their camera. So they're looking off into the distance over to the right and they're looking at you, but 
you can't tell because the camera's over here and they look like they're looking off. So as you're working in the virtual setting, this is a really important piece too. Um, if we're trying to make these connections, don't make the excuse that you can't do it over virtual. Just remember that the connection comes from the camera. That's your eye contact. So get your camera as close to your video feeds as you can so it looks like you're making eye contact. Yeah, I'm actually loath to say what I'm about to say because somebody's going to steal this idea and take it and make a lot of fortune. But if I had the technical know-how, I would embed the camera in the center of the monitor or mm. maybe maybe about two thirds of the way up about where the eyes typically hit. Um, right. and, you know, you know other- what a smart person just did, Dave, as you were saying that? They were like, no, we can make the camera move to where the eyes of the other person are. What? 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 My brain just got blown out. Right. So, um, yeah. And, and you know, you, you also see people, and by the way, you know, especially with Zoom, but this is true for any of, you know, teams, I don't care what it is. Um, you could set up a one person event and just play with your camera and or laptop slash MacBook, whatever, you know, position. I do know that, you know, I have these, I, I have three monitors, I have, a, I have a notebook and then two big monitors. And I used to just have um, a webcam which sat on top of the monitor and so in order to make eye contact, I had to look up all the time and I'm sure, uh, you know, and that probably wasn't real good. Now I use my, my notebook my, uh, camera that's built in and it's really close. So even though I'm looking Anne in, in the eyes, it probably looks like I'm looking her in the eye. Right? It does. Yep. Yeah. And, yep. Um, and so, yeah, really, really good advice there, but play with that height, you know, look at yourself, looking at the camera and get that right. That's, that's so important. Um, especially now, because a lot of our work is that way. And so if you want to make people feel respected and valued and heard and all that stuff, part of it's the body language. So I always say when you are messing around with it, and then we'll move on from the virtual, but when you are messing around with it and practicing, make it so it looks like you're sitting at the table together, right? Simulate that actual in-person sitting across a conference room table or sitting at a table with somebody you know, you, you're filling this screen, you're, you know, you're looking right at the camera so that you can make eye contact with them. And you've eliminated the distractions outside so you can actually be zoomed in to what the person's saying. Yeah. So as Anne gave that advice and I'm looking at her hair is actually just peeking off the top of the screen. And I'm not saying that as a negative way, right? You can probably want a little bit of space there, but, but she's got big hair. Um, I have top, big hair. The, the top is big. We're not talking bigger too. We're not talking about '80s big hair, right? This is definitely. And you don't have any, so you've got extra space above your head. Well, and that's what I was about to say. I, I, I've got about a third as I'm looking at my monitor. I probably my head is probably top of my head is probably two thirds off the screen, and that's probably too much space. Right. You know, I you know I probably tilt this down a little bit, right? And that's much better. You know, the, the problem with this is now you can see I'm in sweatpants and not in professional <laughs> pants. You know, that's, you know. If, and if, I won't usually wear my pajama pants, so <laughs> it wouldn't be quite as popular. That's what I call the virtual mullet. It's business on the top and party on the bottom. Yeah, well, th- in my particular case, I'm just party all over. You're party long, all over the place. I'm still in my workout gear. <laughs> right, I have long sleeve t-shirt and sweatpants, you know. Uh, if, it's, if this was a, if, if this was being videoed, folks, I would have my logoed polo shirt on and then I would set the camera camera where it was and then I'd move in real close so my head filled up that space. Um, But, you know, it's not. At any rate, so- Bottom line is 
sharing be, attention show is the first and easy way to show that you value what somebody has to say and making sure you nail that attention virtually is really important doing the same kind of nodding and and acknowledgement and all that says i want to hear what you have to say yeah and you know there are times on virtual and i know we're, we're stuck in a virtual loop at the moment um there are times in virtual where you're making notes and like i would keep notes on a different screen and and, and right? Just call out the elephant in the room. Hey guys, I, I'm making some notes. So if you see me glancing away from the camera, I'm not ignoring you, right? right. It's the same like in person, like if you're making notes on your iPad or your phone or, or a tablet of some sort, just, you know, or even a piece of paper, I would say, do you mind if I take some notes? Because what you're saying is important to me. And then it doesn't look like I'm doodling or playing solitaire. Right, exactly. Yeah. I'm sorry. Did you say something? Yeah, um, right. I was just about to put the last king on the stack. Yeah. So and the other thing about valued is um, give the other person a chance to talk, right? We talked about asking questions. Also, let them answer. Yeah. And this is so important in the sales conversation um, because if we're not finding out what our client needs, if we're not finding out where their challenges are and what we can solve for them, we're just spewing out a sales script and it's not going to be effective because we're not connecting. And this is so something that somebody said the other day when I was at that student aid administrator conference. She said, we should add individual, treat them like an individual onto this list. And I said, well, I would put that under feels valued, but I like that we're calling it out because that says, I'm not just treating you as a number, you're Dave Rosenberg. And we're having this conversation about your business and how we might be able to help it or your career and how it can get stronger. Yeah, it's funny. It's uh, First of all, I, I, I'd probably put that under respect, but valued respect, there's they're very, you know, they're mm -hmm. highly, all three of these are related. Mm -hmm. um, and that brings in mind a conversation my wife and I often have when we talk about in medicine, the difference between a DO and an MD, right? So a doctor of osteopathy versus a medical doctor. Those are two different schools, two different accreditations a doctor can get. And you may, I'm getting a look from fans. She's unaware of that. I, I so didn't the, know what a DO was. Yeah. So, and it's bigger on the East coast than, than here on the West coast. But it's a you could go to a medical school that's an osteopathic medical school where you get a doctor of osteopathy. And, and the difference is a philosophical one. Both are accepted by the American Medical Association. MDs tend to look at you as symptoms. Oh, you're a gallbladder. Oh, you're a broken leg. A DO looks at you as a person. Um, and so a, a DO looks at you and says, uh, all right, you're a 62-year-old hockey player, active woman who broke her ankle, right? And you would treat a 62-year-old broken ankle different than a 62-year-old active hockey player with a broken ankle, right? Because the outcomes they're looking for may be different, right? If you're a 62-year-old sedentary woman, right, the expectations you would set for uh, outcomes would be different. So we're treating people as individuals, not as symptoms. And in this particular case, it's the same thing, right? Again, if we'll go to a difficult conversation, you're not a worker who has not met expectations, this sort of generic worker. You're Ann Bonnie, who um, is has been chronic, who, who is a mother, um, Ann is not, any of these things I'm about to describe, disclaimer, right? Who is, as God who, said, good Lord, let's just let this redhead worry about herself. <laughs> right. But but let's assume Ann is a single mother of three 
uh, elementary school kids, right? And Bonnie as a single mother of three elementary school kids who is chronically late is different than Anne Bonnie, the 25-year-old single woman, you know, who has the party life who is chronically late. No, I'm not and saying- it doesn't mean that we don't hold them accountable for the same standard, right? Yeah, and that's what you were just getting at. We we hold them to the same standard, but we may treat it a little bit differently, like you just said. I right, love it. right. I, I'm, I may, the support I give Anne Bonnie, the mother, is going to be different than the support I give Anne Bonnie, the party girl. Right. Totes. Totes my goats. And totes. if I'm not tr doing that individual, <laughs> can't believe I just said that, uh, I that individualization as part of that respect and that feeling valued, then that's, yeah. And that's where a, a lot of the other things that people add, they want to add empathy. They want to add listening, but ultimately it's all under that same, same, um, same bucket of feeling that, you know, showing somebody that we value what they bring to the table um, and, and that we respect them as an individual and as a human and we want to give them some control. Yeah. So in the beginning, I said, you know, we could probably just limit this to control because control adds to value and respect. But as we hash this out, really, there's other things besides control that lead to value that we urge you to include in this. Um, right now, though, I'm thinking respect and value are also the same thing. Uh, but I think there's some things you could add to respect as well that are not part of value, as I say that. For example... It's not about them as a, this is not who they are. What they've done wrong is not who they are, right? In other words, you're not late. You, you're not somebody who's always late, right? That's that's you. You've been late five times. I'm not saying you're a late person, right? Or you're somebody who's chronically late, right? That, that, that puts it on you and that's disrespectful. You are somebody who struggles with, who, who, who has been late five times in the last month and now it's a behavior mm -hmm. and behaviors can be changed. Right. Yep. And I would argue that also follow my follow through as your boss of the things that we talk about or as the leader or the talker or whatever, my follow through also shows that respect. It shows my integrity, but it says I respect you enough to do the things that I said I would do. Yes. And I'll add to that, by the way, having this conversation in a loving, caring way, coming from a mindset, and this is the first thing I talk about in my, my best employee's guide to accountability or to improving employee improvement, is you come from a place of, I am trying to help you be better. Not I am trying to make myself feel better by chewing your tail out. This is not about power. This is about really trying to help you succeed and thrive. That's another form of respect. Mm-hmm. And just in general, walking into these tough conversations or any kind of, you know, asking for something or trying to persuade somebody, walking into those conversations, uh, ready to treat the other person as a professional, intelligent adult, just like you are. And that's just basic respect. Because a lot of times, again, going back to what you talked about earlier, a lot of times when we're entering into these conversations, we're frustrated, we're upset, we're overwhelmed. Our emotional intelligence starts to go out the window and we might get a little condescending. We might get a little finger waggy or finger pointy and accusatory. And so it's making sure that we are respecting the other person by walking into this conversation under the assumption that they are an intelligent, mature adult professional, just like we are. Absolutely. Just because they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
um, and, and assume that they are capable of getting better. Totally. Right. Come from it from a place that you are, you have the ability to do these things that we are asking you to do, you know, and let them come to the conclusion. Well, mm-hmm. Right within a certain time frame, as we say, let them come to the conclusion. But there is a time limit we need to put on there, you know, because we do we are responsible to other people, and we need to respect sure. the entire team. And sometimes that means that you don't have enough time to get as good as I know you're capable of getting without putting undue burden on the rest of the team. So you have to sort of weigh the respect for everybody. Right. So I want to be respectful of our listeners. This is probably I think turned into one of our longest. How's it? How long have we been going? I was wondering. You know, I, I I didn't look at our exact start time, but since you logged on, it's been 57 or Woo! 53 minutes. So yeah, um, we're, we're probably 40, 45 minutes into this. At this well, point. there you go, everyone. That's a, it's a, it always stimulates good dialogue. I love bringing this up with groups to have them talk about it because then they own the process just like Dave just did, which is why I thought this would be a great thing to talk about. So respect feeling valued and give them a little bit and what Dave? Yeah. So we did promise in the beginning and then we, we went on so long to talk about, you know, how, right. And so I'm just, we're not going to belabor this, but I just want to give this to you. If you're early on in, in, in your ability to have the conversations that meet these things, what I encourage you to do is practice. In other words, if you're about to go into a meeting whether, whether it's a difficult conversation, sales meeting, and you just, I want to make sure I do this, role play this with somebody and, and, and ask them to, you know, how much am I listening? Am I interrupting? Am I, you know, am I making the eye contact? Um, you know, all of those sort of things that we talked about and get some feedback and be open to that feedback. And this is just one of those things that, you know, we're never going to be perfect. Give yourself grace by the also, right? Mm-hmm. If, if, if things don't go as well as you think, just give yourself grace and learn from it. It gets learn better. From it. Yeah. Do better next time. It gets better. It gets easier and it's never perfect. And we all have those bad days. You know, we all have those bad days. So, so practice makes better because, because there is no perfect. No wonder you're a motivational speaker, Dave. No, but it's true. It's true. I love that. That's a great point is just continue doing what I call the debrief. How did that go? What do I wish it done differently? What did I do this? What would I do the same? And what will I do the same and differently next time? Yeah. And, and role-playing it, is the most hideous yet powerful way for you to actually improve a lot of these soft skills. So even though it is super uncomfortable, go do it because it's genuinely the only way to practice in a low stakes situation. Yeah. And last thing, and we're going to say goodbye on the respect and feel valued piece. If you screw up in the middle of the conversation, once you catch yourself, own it to the other person, give them the respect of saying, you know what? I just went off on you and I, 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 that's not my intention. And I apologize. Now, if you find yourself doing it all the time, that's probably a clue that there's more Stop saying you're starry and go fix it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And owning it is great because they already know that you messed up. And so they're already thinking about it. So if you join them in that, you're not pretending that they're an idiot and didn't realize that you were just a total jerk. Exactly. (laughs) If if you're interested, by the way, in this resource I'm talking about, just uh, either send me an email, dave at lockdownleadership.com or put it in the uh, um, 
the comments or, or yeah, actually just send me an email and, and I'll send you a link to where you can get that. That's Dave at LockedOnLeadership.com. Yeah. And, and the website's in the show notes and you can find it in there as well. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. That concludes another episode of Disarming Persuasion. This is Dave Rosenberg, and you can find my website at LockedOnLeadership.com. And this is Ann Bonnie at YourChangeSpeaker.com. Remember, if they fail to make a decision, you failed to disarm them. <laughs>